Making a recipe that calls for butter? Make it better with European butter from France. With a minimum of 82% butter fat, it's no wonder French butter is the number one choice for chefs the world over. Whether you're whipping up an omelet, sauteing vegetables, or spreading it on toast, the rich, cultured flavor of butter from France always elevates. Be sure to look for Made in France on the label, and for recipes, tips, and tricks, go to tasteeurope.com. So I go and I talk to my mom. Mom, I feel so much better. And she says to me, oh, yes, child, you have been refreshed. I said, oh, and I've like been eating less meat and more vegetables. And she, and she says, child, that's how we ate in Vietnam. You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm your host, Eliza Barbanel. Today, we're happy to welcome Andrea Nguyen back on the Taste Podcast to talk about her latest, perhaps even greatest cookbook, Evergreen Vietnamese. Andrea is the prolific cookbook author behind favorites like Vietnamese Food Any Day and Into the Vietnamese Kitchen. Her latest book dives deep into Vietnamese food's rich palette of plants from the land and sea, offering up ingenious recipes like homemade vegan fish sauce and a Grand Slam banh mi breakfast combo. It's such a fun, craving-inducing conversation, and I hope you'll enjoy. Andrea Nguyen, thank you so much for coming on the Taste Podcast again. Oh, my pleasure, Eliza. Thanks for inviting me back. It's fun to have you back. I was listening to the last podcast episode in preparation, and then I was like, I should just stop and come in straight. So this is where we're at. Hey, do it. I'm I'm ready. <laughs> <laughs> Great, because I have a burning question for you, which is, what was it like developing a vegan fish sauce? It was um, first just kind of this startling thing because, I mean, you know, fish sauce is about fish, just the, the name. Yeah, that's like the only thing in it, kind of. Right. It's fish and salt. And so I thought to myself, if I'm going to write a cookbook about um vegetables and be appealing to vegetarians and make it all about Vietnamese cooking, what the heck am I going to do with the fish sauce? And um, luckily, there have been vegan fish sauces on the market for a number of years. And um, by and large, I have to tell you, the stuff that is sold at, say, mainstream supermarkets, like health food markets, that sold as vegan fish sauce is honestly so bland and not really umami and savory enough. Um, and in the Vietnamese community, in hardcore little Saigon markets, there is this fish sauce that's imported from Vietnam that's pretty good. But um, it's hard for people to get, and it's kind of chemically sometimes. So I thought, can I try to reverse engineer this and come up with a version that is a one-to-one -one swap with regular nước mắm and um, make it doable with readily available ingredients. <laughs> so I was like, do you think you can do this? And I was like, well, I don't know. <laughs> Gotta find out. Gotta find out. Gotta find out. So I spent, you know, several weeks doing it. I'm picturing you with like beakers and like balls of string on the wall, like kind of like mad scientist situation. What was your approach actually like? Um, well, the one of the primary ingredients in these um fish sauces that were coming out of Vietnam that are vegan um, 
they would be labeled nuk mam chai. Chai, C-H-A-Y, is the Vietnamese word for vegetarian or vegan. And so um, oftentimes they included pineapple juice. Wow. I know. And I thought, is it fermented? You know, because I thought, well, maybe that has something to do with it. So I started out with pineapple juice and um, it was kind of clear. And I used and I thought, okay, if you're going to make it doable for home cooks, it's got to be like regular pineapple. So I juice from a can. So can you do that? So then I bought canned pineapple juice and I filtered it because fish sauce is theoretically, you know, kind of clear. So I put it through a, um, a coffee filter. And then I thought, well, what can I do to introduce like a briny quality? Um, and I realized that I could use seaweed. And um, certain kinds of seaweeds, when you use when you soak them, I noticed they had a very fishy quality. And so I thought, okay, well, I can add some seaweed in there for that. And also um, seaweed has plenty of glutamates, naturally occurring glutamates. Um, and then I added salt and I was getting getting close. But if anyone who is like pr- try to put a lot of salt into water, you realize there's a certain point where the salt starts crystallizing because mm-hmm. there's just too much salinity. So I still needed um, something to send it over the top and I had to reach for a flavor enhancer. Um, and that came into and the form of MSG or um, Asian seasoning granules. Um, but also to just to tweak it some more I and to provide color and stuff, I used um, Marmite. So <laughs> I, I wrote all of this stuff up in a notebook with like charts and grids and stuff like that to just the cool thing that I, that I want to tell people, whether you're vegan or not, it is like the coolest experiment to do because you all of a sudden understand how like there is a scaffolding for building umami in this um, vegetarian, this vegan nook mum. And it's really fun. Yeah, I think if you're a flavor nerd, which obviously you are, and I think a lot of home cooks are, that's such a fun challenge to think about replacing something that has such an iconic flavor um, without like that most key ingredient. It's like the coolest puzzle to solve. Yeah, yeah. And I and I would um, test it out, you know, in, in food to see like, all right, can I really replace, you know, one-to-one with, um, with regular fish sauce? And I could because oftentimes when I cook with fish sauce, um, I want people to know that you don't just like use fish sauce only because fish sauce has its own uh, saltiness. So I always combine it with um, salt. And so in doing that, you know, you're using two different qualities of savoriness to build your flavors and you can calibrate things that way. And so it, it worked out and um, I was really surprised <laughs> and I tested it out on my mother. Oh my God, scary. <laughs> scary, right. She's like, you know, at the time she was 87 and I was like, listen, try this out, taste it. And she, she goes, oh my God, it tastes and looks just like Nook Mum. <laughs> but then she set it in her fridge and she just goes, you know, that's interesting. I'll let the rest of the family try it out. But she still uses regular fish sauce, but she was very impressed. So you told her it was the vegan version before you gave it to her? Yeah. 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 I guess you have to like set the expectation. You don't want to be shocking somebody. Exactly. Or else, you know, she may reach for it one day, but no, you know, it's, uh, it's, well, it's fun though. Cause you know, part of like vegetarian cooking in Asia is like really making the, um, the mimic, you know, the fake 
And the mock meat, yeah. The mock meat, yeah. You know, and there's an art form, there's a craft to that. And um, and here, you know, it's built upon upon ingredients that are sourced from the land and the sea, you know, vegetables. And I just thought that was like the coolest thing to do. Yeah, it's definitely a fun challenge. And you've done so many cookbooks, so I bet it must have been fun to have just like a totally new framework to be working in. Yeah, it is. And, you know, the when... Um, you taste it, you go, oh gosh, that is like really, and it has the, all these umami qualities of um, fish sauce with that um, kind of piscine quality too. Mm. And I had a couple of recipe testers, um, one who was vegan and one who was not. And both of them were like, you know, I've tried some of those commercial vegan fish sauces and this one that you've come up with is really awesome. So <laughs> unbeknownst to me, I got their validation. <laughs> I mean, validation is important to have, I feel like, especially in the recipe testing process. It it definitely, definitely is. So we're talking about this vegan fish sauce um, in the context of your new book, Evergreen Vietnamese. And I'm wondering if you could tell me a little bit about your journey towards writing the book. I know that it kind of came out of needing to shift your diet due to health reasons, which obviously is a personal decision for a lot of people. But I think especially for somebody where food is such a big part of your life, like that must have been uh, just a really galvanizing part of the process. In 2019, I was I turned 50 years old. And um, to all of you out there... I- Whatever age you are, things happen to your body. <laughs> and and in our profession, Eliza, we end up eating a lot and drinking a lot and traveling a lot and combining a lot of different foods and beverages all at once that you probably shouldn't. And in 2019, I found that I just um, had like some weird health conditions um, and had like sort of like honestly a little meltdown a physical meltdown and I had kind of like panic attacks. I had this strange bulge in my um, like lower abdomen groin area. And my doctor said, oh, you have a hernia. And I'm like, what? And she sent me for tests and ultrasounds, which I've never had to have. And she sent me to a surgeon and he looked at me and he said, what's wrong with you? You don't need an operation. Tell me what's going on. And I just about burst out to tears. I said to him, I've just been working way too hard and I'm so stressed out. And I think I just need to like dial things back and just eat better and take care of myself and get, you know, rest. And he looked at me and said, yeah, you do. And this was to a stranger. And I think that we, modernity leads us all to, um, to think that we can just keep going, but sometimes our bodies say that, that we can't. And I was trying to figure out um, what I could do to alter the way that I ate um, so that I, I could be better. Because obviously I didn't have a problem that medically needed to be healed, right? Um, and so I thought about my diet and I thought about all the diets that are available out there. And oftentimes, you know, people say, well, the Mediterranean diet is like really healthy. And I thought, well, it is, but it's not re- doesn't really jive with me um, coming from where I am, you know, being born in Vietnam and and really loving Asian food. And I thought, what can I do to really amp up, like, vegetables? Um, And so I really doubled down on vegetables. I realized I had eaten vegetables and I thought it was pretty healthy. I live in a place called Santa Cruz, California. There's, like, organic food all over the place. It's like ground zero for the natural food store, kind of. Totally, totally. You know, like, food glows at the farmer's market. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, we, you know, and, and 
hyper local foods. Um, I and I even like garden, but I just like wasn't prioritizing plants in cooking. And we talk about you know in food we talk about oh we need to like move meat to the side you know and move vegetables to the center of our plate. But we really like don't show people how to do it. So then I started playing around with it, cutting back on the meat, um, and just really building up, you know, um, instead of like one vegetable side, maybe two vegetable sides or making one vegetable side, but then making really bulking up a stir fry with more vegetables and cutting down on my meat. Um, Because I knew that I could not become a vegetarian or a vegan because I really love food. And when you ask that question of like, well, what is that like? Because like you work in food. Well, it was like really hard. <laughs> and, I, and I know that I am not a virtuous person. <laughs> I was cheating, bending the rules, you know, and um, I'm very curious. So I was like, nah, that's not going to work because I'm going to want to eat meat once in a while. I just need to eat less meat. And I found um, that I felt so much better um, within like the span of like three or four months. And I started losing weight and I was like, oh, you know, I have a new lease on life. So I go and I talk to my mom. This is pre-vegan fish sauce time. I go and talk to her and I said, mom, I feel so much better. And she says to me, oh, yes, child. And she's, we're talking Vietnamese. She goes, you have been refreshed and we and awakened from where you were before. She said, congratulations. I said, oh, and I've like been eating less meat and more vegetables. And she, and she says, child, that's how we ate in Vietnam. <laughs> so at that point, I was like, she's not damning me with faint praise. But what she was telling me is that I was really returning to my food roots. Yeah. And I really like the way you write about this in the book about how um, the way that like ingredient scarcity and abundance in Vietnam and also Buddhist traditions naturally informed the way that plants are just a part of Vietnamese food. Could you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah. So, you know, we're traditionally an agrarian society, just like so many other societies in the world. And um, our food, what we eat is sourced from the land. It's agricultural. And so for me, the term plant-based is not an necessarily an all or nothing notion of like veganism, for example, but I think it is the notion of putting plants first. Honestly, for anybody that says to me, no, plant-based is just, a, it has to be 100% vegan, I have to tell them that I feel like that is imposing a modern Western notion of what plant-based is. And in certain regards, it's like cultural imperialism, you know? Because like if my ancestors and my culture, if we have been putting plants first for millennia because we're growing things um, in the ground and harvesting them and putting them to play in our diets and having healthy lives, that is being plant-based. And when you look at Vietnamese food, even in a dish like pho, which people are like, oh, yeah, it's beef. But when you look at it, you're like, what are the rice noodles made out of? Rice. Plants, yeah. Plants, right? And then the aromatics like ginger and onion and then all the herbs and you got your bean sprouts and you have your spices. The meat's just kind of there. But there are so many other things that define that dish that are plant-based. Um, and in Evergreen Vietnamese, 
I actually have vegan pho recipes that I absolutely love. They're actually three regional um, noodle soups that are totally vegan, and I'm really proud of them because this is probably the only time where I will write vegan Vietnamese noodle soup recipes. Well, maybe not never, but I mean, they're just really, really cool. Yeah, and you did three of them, so you don't need to necessarily do more right away. Exactly. No, you know, you can go through the three regions of, of Vietnam, the southern v- region with Hu Tiu, the central region with spicy Bun Bao Hue, and the northern region with um, Pho, and build them as um, vegan noodle soups. Although there is also a chicken and vegetable Pho recipe that's really, really cool for people who want to go low meat. Yeah, I think that I appreciate you talking about the difference between plant-based and vegan because I don't think those words mean the same thing. And uh, it, I think it can be limiting to people as well, right? That you don't you don't have to live all or nothing, right? You can just shift things around based on how you feel or what you're craving. And that like that is not only acceptable, but something that should be celebrated. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, Eliza, like, Vegetables deserve to be loved by everyone, not just vegans. <laughs> and if we're going to save the planet and also be healthier, I think that the more people who are putting vegetables first on their plates or eating more vegetables, that's just going to be better for everyone. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think like vegetables are such a big part of the plant-based conversation. And then because you and I are talking in 2023, like meat alternatives are also such a big thing. Did you ever think about including some of those like beyond impossible alternatives in the book? And then how did you end up landing on the kind of protein element that you use? Well, I'm I'm really glad you asked about that because I did um, consider, you know, God, it'd be so easy if I could just, you know, grab Impossible Burger beyond meat, beyond beef, um, and just swap them in. But the thing is that a lot of those products are fabricated for a certain profile, certain uses, basically hamburgers and meatballs, um, or maybe like taco seasoning or taco, you know, fillings kind of thing. A ground meat. A ground meat. And the number one ground meat in Vietnamese food is pork, not beef. And um, we manipulate the flavors in a certain way. So when I tried, so <laughs> I'll just back up. So there's this other thing that I tried making first, um, aside from the vegan fish sauce, which is this Vietnamese bologna. And typically it's made by grinding up pork um, and in, into like a force meat, a smooth meat paste. And then you wrap, you, you like wrap it up in banana leaf and foil and then you you boil it and then it comes out almost like a mortadella, like a, a bologna. Mm. And there's fish sauce in there and black pepper and garlic. It's called um, yalua or talua. And so I tried making it with with um, Beyond Beef um, because there is a beef version. You can use different kind of protein. And it just would not form that meat paste. It would just because it's not formulated for that. But I was like, hell yeah, if I can get it to do that, I'm like golden. Um, but in the end, I found what worked for that recipe was tofu and um, and vital wheat gluten, um, which is like seitan. So after doing that, I thought, you know what? I'm just going to go back to my friend tofu. <laughs> always been there. You know, always been there. It's affordable. It's natural. Um, and I thought that is going to be my... my um, elemental protein in evergreen Vietnamese. So so interestingly, you know, there are like other um, animal proteins in the book, but, but by and large, tofu is the star protein 
in the book. And um, you can use, I suggest like um, alternative ground meats for like one recipe, which is um, the these wild pepper leaves that um, that are formed into rolls and you make this filling with lemongrass and, and curry powder and stuff like that. And typically it's uh, ground beef that's used um, for the lalote rolls. But um, I, you can use ground pork, ground chicken, ground turkey, and also beyond beef. So that's like the only place. But otherwise, you know, I think that, that those alternative meat products are also kind of overprocessed, not just kind of, but very. and Undeniably, uh, yeah. And, and I think for certain applications, they're great. But um, Vietnamese food needs something that's a little more neutral, um, not something that's been fabricated so that it's going to taste like chorizo or or a hamburger. Right, because you're adding so many delicious things to flavor it anyways. Exactly, exactly. So that's also like, you know, taking a look at culinarily what proteins are, right? And they actually, in their raw form, um, animal protein is pretty bland tasting. We have to season it. The thing with tofu is that so many people go, oh, God, tofu is so bland. Tofu is bland, but so are, is a lot of animal protein. It's just that you have to season tofu just like you do other proteins. And that tofu is like a ready-to-eat pre-cooked protein. So people are, are safely able to taste it. You don't do that with ground beef or chicken or pork, right? I hope not, yeah. 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 So then this notion of tofu being bland and being yucky, I think that um, it really stems from not understanding what it is. But it is a wonderful um, a source of, of sustenance that can be really manipulated in so many ways. So I, you know, like you pan fry tofu, but you can crumble it, you can whip it up um, and, you know, turn it into almost like an egg replacer kind of thing. And it absorbs flavors so well. So in, in this book, um, there are a lot of wonderful tofu recipes that I'm quite happy with. And I hope readers are and cooks are too. Right. And didn't you do a whole cookbook about tofu? I did. It's <laughs> it my third cookbook. It was called Asian Tofu. So I got to geek out um, on the world of tofu and travel to Asia to take a look at how tofu is um, made and also um, celebrated and um, cooked by just like regular home cooks. And it and I and the book also teaches you how to make tofu. Um, but, you know, you don't always have to do that. You just also need to learn how to treat tofu with care and craftsmanship. Definitely. Do you think that you learned anything new about tofu this go around that was maybe surprising to you? Yes. For for anyone like who who spends a lot of time cooking, you know, or like if you write cookbooks or you're a recipe developer, you know, you're you're cooking and you're standing at your stove and sometimes you're just like you get these aha moments. So one of the aha moments I had early on was I was like, I love Hainan chicken rice. Mm, me too. Right? And um, what always kind of trips me up and what kind of puts me off from making it is cooking the chicken. Because there's like so much stuff about, oh my God, you must poach the chicken correctly or it's going to be dry. And I realized that what I really love about Hainan chicken and rice is the rice and the sauces. Yeah, it's not even the chicken. It's not really the chicken. <laughs> and so <laughs> I was like, what can I do with a little tofu? And because the chicken is really very, um, 
it's what it's succulent, right? And it is this um, mild tasting um, protein that allows you to pick up and convey the sauces, mm-hmm. right? And so I was like, all right, I'm going to pan fry that tofu so that it's going to get a little crispy skin, but then the interior is going to be tender and and succulent so that you get this contrast that you wouldn't get necessarily get in chicken, in a poached chicken. And so I I tried that out and I made the sauces and I made the rice and the rice is built on like this really great broth with like uh, seaweed and mushroom and vegetables. And I put it together and I was like, oh my God, it's just as good as Hainan chicken and rice. And I've seen vegan versions where they use like, you know, seitan and that kind of stuff mm-hmm. or mock meats. But this was better because I just feel that tofu really picks up the flavor as well. So that was a wonderful aha moment. Um, and then I make like these umami tofu crumbles that because I told you, you know, I didn't want to use mock meat that was fabricated, you know, processed and sold at the supermarket. It wasn't available. So I made my own. so I made it even harder (laughs) well no because the cool thing is that you can just like I use it out of I use supermarket ingredients to make these umami tofu crumbles that mimic like ground pork that's cooked and it comes together pretty easily and one of my recipe testers who um, had a toddler like made it with her toddler and like we use it in different um, dishes and so you can do all of this like at home, like with supermarket ingredients. How cool is that? I like that. I feel like, um, and I definitely fall into this camp. Sometimes things are given to us that are packaged and it's so easy to use it that way that you just assume, like I just did, that it would be hard to do it yourself at home. But then when you actually do it and it's achievable, I think that's really empowering and it keeps us connected to food in a way that sometimes we just get removed from when you're buying something that's packaged. Exactly. And there is that magic in a packaged product, right? The convenience. Yeah. And then there's also like, oh my God, they just like handed this to me. But it is much more magical and empowering if you go, oh my God, I can do that myself. <laughs> well, it takes time, okay? I mean, and this is the thing. I mean, I I take it upon myself as a cookbook writer um, that I have a responsibility to anybody who picks up my book or uses any of my recipes because that's your time. And I value your time and I don't want to waste your time. If you're going to go out grocery shopping, you know, we're here in New York City and I know how difficult it is to go find ingredients here, even though there are like tons of markets, right? But it's not like your supermarkets are going and bodegas are going to be outfitted um, like a suburban American supermarket or my markets in Santa Cruz. And the Asian markets here are different too and they're not always consistent. So... I I think to myself, all right, what can I do to help you come closest to succeeding or matching my flavors so that um, you feel like you had those aha moments like I did and that you enjoy the food and you had a wonderful journey in this recipe and that you'll try it again. And if I can do that, then I've done my job. Yeah, I think that really comes across as a reader. I feel very um, held when I'm reading your introduction and you're talking about the way that you measure things or even like the size of pots and pans that you're using. Because so many recipes will say a medium-sized pot or pan and 
how do you know what a medium size is? I think that really does come across. And then another thing that I felt empowered to do is to uh, learn how to use a vegetable cleaver because you were talking about how amazing it is. And I'm wondering if you could give like a quick pitch to somebody that's maybe scared to uh, develop their finesse with a cleaver about why that's such a worthwhile tool. Sure. Um, and that was like my secret weapon to getting through the book, I have to tell you. It's like using this Chinese vegetable cleaver. You can use a Japanese one too, called a nakiri. Um, a Chinese vegetable cleaver has a very thin blade. And um, the one I get um, comes from a uh, Hong Kong-based company called Chan Chi Key. And um, the blade's very thin and very easy to say just f- – it. It's tall. It's about three and a half inches tall. And it looks really scary, but it is literally in your hand feels like an extension of your arm. Like, you know, no problem with lemongrass, man. If you want to like <laughs> smack garlic, like yan can cook or ginger, no problem. It's like thwack. And um, and if you want to cut through a sweet potato it'll or butternut squash, it'll just do it very cleanly for you. And it's scary looking because you're like, oh, my God, it could hurt me. But when you have a good knife that literally feels like an extension of your arm. And I remember when I was learning to cook very early on, I read like it was some kind of like poetic Chinese statement about this this ancient butcher, and he was able to make the most clean cuts through um, meats because the cleaver was like an extension of his arm. And when I used my vegetable cleaver, that's how I felt. And I can zip through like, you know, dicing and mincing so easily with this cleaver. And when I looked around, there are other chefs who use similar cleavers too. They just don't talk about it. And um, I really want people to check it out because it doesn't cost very much. And it is like this really liberating thing to use in your kitchen. And it also looks really cool. I was going to say, I'm picturing you like wielding two cleavers, like zipping through the air right now. It's like the main character moment that everybody wants to feel in the kitchen. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Me and my vegetable cleavers, you know. (laughs) Taking on the world. Yes, yes, yes. And stainless steel is going to be easier for you to maintain than carbon steel, but carbon steel will be easier to get a sharp edge on. So pick your poison. Yeah, I, I do need. I think I need to try one because you know I have friends that like, grew up in households that use cleavers all the time, and anything that I would use a chef's knife for, they're using the cleaver for. But then also, when I'm scared to cut through my butternut squash, they're not having that problem. So I think that like I'm due for the upgrade. Yeah, yeah, and it's really they're they're very affordable cleavers, and I actually did this thing that where I sent um, them out to my recipe testers. I'm like, who wants to try a cleaver? try a knife. So um, I have about 20 uh, recipe testers who are volunteers and I sent them out to them. They tried different ones and um, they were so excited (laughs) because one of the things with, look, when you're dealing with vegetables, you're going to be chopping a lot. There are certain things you can do in the food processor. I'm going to tell you that, of course, but you're going to get beautiful, beautiful cuts um, with a knife. But I also know that it's a pain in the butt. And you're like, you know, this is a lot of mushroom you're asking me to chop up, Andrea. <laughs> and you're, and I don't want you to hate me, but I'm also telling you that I would never ask a cook to do something that I would not do at least 10 times over because I go through a recipe that many times to develop it. Um, and, and the um, Chinese vegetable cleaver really helped me get through it. And I think that it can be very helpful to a lot of other cooks. Shout out to the cleaver. Hey, you know. I can't believe you have 20 recipe testers. That seems like 
a lot. Have you amassed them over the books throughout the years? Yeah, I have. Um, some of them have been with me since book one. Um, Ride or die. Yep, yep, yep. And then some of them just randomly email me and volunteer. Um, some of them have dropped out over the years and some of them have just said, yeah, I want to keep testing, but maybe, you know, they can't test as much because they have dietary restrictions or time restrictions, but I always include them. And sometimes I call pinch hitters. Call me up. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I need some help here. I think you'll really like this recipe. (laughs) (laughs) You're pitching it. If it's your recipe, I think I would like it. So I would just have to try it. All right. I'm going to keep your your, your email and phone number around. (laughs) (laughs) On speed dial. Exactly. I'll have to get the cleaver so I'm ready. (laughs) So I'm curious, you know, you have done so many books. Has your approach towards starting a new one changed or do you start from the same place each time? I start from pretty much the same place each time, um, which is what do I have to say? What's my point? What What am I saying that's different than what I've said in the past? Um, what's my motivation? What do I, you know? I mean, I think that when you write a book, it's forever. And someone's going to pay for that book. And it needs to have some meaning. And I've had the luxury of making seven cookbooks. And, um, you know, a lot of them have been Vietnamese cookbooks. So you would think that I have run out of ideas, but no, <laughs> I have not. Because, you know, you can come at a cuisine from many different angles. Um, and my recipes are not, you know, they don't, they're not the same. You know, cuisine has a lot to, uh, one cuisine has a lot to, to plumb. But with this book, I was like thinking about my desire a while ago to write what I consider to be the, an elemental Vietnamese cookbook. So the idea that what is elemental, what is true, what is at the core, the heart of Vietnamese food. And I, I've been thinking about this, my muse, for a number of years. It just so happened that I landed upon vegetables as being that elemental aspect. And because vegetables have taught me so much about what is evergreen and enduring about Vietnamese cooking, um, it turns out that it's, you know, sustainable as well then that's why it's evergreen with a hyphen, evergreen Vietnamese. Because it is these enduring lessons about Vietnamese cuisine and culture, but it is also sustainable for your personal health and for the health of the planet. Definitely. And not only is there so much to be talking about this cuisine, but you yourself are changing and evolving as a person. And so your approach is always going to be different as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I've been able to write cookbooks now. My career is strangely um, coming up on like 20 years of doing this. I never thought I'd be doing this for this long. I thought that after my first book in 2006 that I'd be like a one book wonder. (laughs) (laughs) But um, my publisher kept me around and they said, yeah, you know, you're pretty good at this. And I thought, all right, you know, I like doing this. Um, But I think that over time you become a better cook, you become a better writer, you become... um, honestly like an honest writer. And so in this book, I really laid it out. So so when people are looking at evergreen Vietnamese and the recipes, like you'll see all of these recipe notes. And in the recipe notes, for example, I tell you about ingredient swaps, things that I've done in my kitchen or I've, and I've had them tested or um, things that I've wondered like, hmm, this is a, a recipe for um, a noodle soup broth that is made with... Um, 
a pressure cooker. But then what if you don't have a pressure cooker? What are you going to do? So here's like, you know, uh, uh, the variation using a regular pot. And then I think, oh, God, you know, what if I have a... um, what if I swap the main ingredients for a filling? Can I make it with with meat instead? Or can I make it vegan? Now, I could hold off on publishing that recipe for another book and just say, oh, look, readers, I have a new recipe, right? <laughs> but I just was like, no, this is going to be your variation. Because I think the value of a recipe is being able to present it to cooks and readers so that they know that they can play with it, that they can take it in a lot of different directions if they if they look in the book. Um, and so we organized it in a very um, consistent manner. So when you look at the recipes, please, please, if there's like recipe notes, they're like recipe endnotes, check those out because that's where I've like tucked all of this stuff that my copy editor wouldn't let me fit elsewhere. Copy editors. Oh. <laughs> And then also in the margins, there are what these things that we built into design called bursts, and they're in green um, print. And there are all these extra tips that I have in there about like the weight of measurements in in metric, or or if there's a video tip, because I made these video tips for a few tricky dance moves that um, I figured that you know people would really want to see. And those are all housed on YouTube as well as my website vialwoodkitchen.com, and they're called evergreen tips. Um, and and I hope to add to them too. So I've really kind of done my best to um, provide you with all the tools necessary to have fun with these recipes. Yeah, you've done a great job of that. And it, to me, it touches on an interesting trend in cookbooks over the past couple of years where I do think more people are providing substitutions and, and ways to kind of riff on recipes. And to me, it almost seems like an acknowledgement of the way that cookbook readership has evolved over the past however many years. I think that People are just so much more informed as home cooks and want to be playing with recipes anyways. Not that people haven't always been, you know, putting however much garlic they want into something. But I'm curious if if you think that your own kind of cookbook readership has kind of grown their skills with you or evolved in some way. I think they they have totally. Um, they they tell me things that they do um, on social media and and um, you know little emails that people send me um, and riffs that they do. And and I'm also like looking online, you know, scanning the internet to see what's going on, like say in Vietnam. Um, people are making all kinds of cool new substitutions because they're getting information on the internet about what's going on in say the United States or Australia. And, and so now the flow of information about food is extremely fast and extremely global. And what the pandemic has showed us is that we don't always have what we need. And so, for example, like there's this ingredient that I am pushing in the book, uh, fermented tofu, which is what I consider to be like next level tofu. It's this creamy, whiny, um, cheese-like tofu. And um, the, the really good versions taste almost like a blue cheese or feta cheese. Mm. Um, and you can use it as a seasoning um, in stir fries. I make like a dip for crudités that I also like use as a salad dressing. But I was like, all right, this tastes really good. But what if people don't have it. So I thought, all right, let's see what happens if you use like shiro miso, white miso. So there's always going to be that variation in there with the miso for people. And um, and I had, you know, the variation tested. So I was thinking about, you know, what if 
I didn't want to follow my own recipe, <laughs> which I sometimes don't. <laughs> and what would I do? Because I was fooling around with my recipes and seeing, seeing like, you know, can I break it or how far I can push it or can I come up with new flavors? Um, and sometimes I can't, but sometimes I can come up with a different way of making something. And um, that's the fun of cooking. Yeah. And I, I feel like just listening to you talk about it, I can tell how much fun you have with that. And I think that that is really exciting to people when you receive a cookbook. Also, I think that, as we said before, you know, it can be scary to make a new recipe. You're investing your time and your money and not only in making it, but like shopping to the grocery store, getting the ingredients, bringing it back. And this idea that if something goes wrong, it's not going to turn out at all, I think can be kind of demoralizing for people. And I think to get something that has this level of playfulness in it, that's saying, you know, these are the fundamentals that you have to keep, but these are the things that you can play around with can be um, empowering in that way. Definitely. You know, some of these ideas that I put into my cookbooks are perhaps dishes that people have never tasted, right? So I need to sell you on the recipe. Why did I put it in there? Why do I think it's valuable for you? Um, why is it valuable to to be printed in a book? And so I have to give you all kinds of visual cues and tactile cues and taste cues so that you have a sense of of the um, pertinence of this dish to to your you know needs and desires to to express Vietnamese-ness. and so for example, there's this recipe in there for um, twice fried lemongrass tofu. That's not a dish that's like super popular in America, but it is in Vietnam, and I had it like back in 2017 at like a brew pub, and I thought it was going to be like the stir fry tofu with like some lemongrass and chilies. But it was like deep fried tofu with like this fuzzy pile of lemongrass and chili on top. Fun. Totally fun. And it was a damn beer nosh. I couldn't believe it. And so <laughs> so I was like saving that. You know, I thought, okay, when do I get to unleash that recipe out in the world? And will people really get it? And so I developed the recipe and I called it twice fried lemongrass tofu. We didn't shoot it. So that recipe isn't really a looker. But, you know, like recipes that aren't necessarily lookers, often sometimes super tasty. But I did like a, uh, an interview with a uh, radio interview with a chef recently, and he said to me, Andrea, yesterday I went to a Vietnamese restaurant, and guess what they served? Fried lemongrass tofu, and there was a recipe in your book. And I was like, all right, <laughs> I'm onto something here because... We always like gravitate towards the same dishes, right? Mm -hmm. But there are so many other dishes to explore in a cuisine. So if I can use, you know, the space in a book like Evergreen to just push the envelope a little bit and have you try something else that would make me and you happy. Yeah, I like to see you doing that. And it makes me think about, you know, it's been as you said, like 20 years since you've been publishing these cookbooks, a lot of them are Vietnamese. You are like kind of one of the, I think, forebearers and stewards of Vietnamese food in America. And I think that it has become much more popular as a cuisine over that period of time. Has the way that you like view yourself as a cookbook author and the work that you're trying to do changed with that evolution? Yeah. Um, I used to think that I had to preserve the cuisine. And I think that we all, when, you know, you start out, 
um, doing something, you're really scared. You're like, oh, I have to be true to my heritage. I have to be true to my community and um, because you want to honor that. And I really did to my my best ability with um, Into the Vietnamese Kitchen because, you know, I was trying to present the Vietnamese experience in America of immigrants coming here and trying to preserve their identity through food and um, and always reaching back but moving forward. So there's always that movement in what I write. Um, but over time, like with the Ban Mi handbook and with the pho cookbook, I was like, no, don't get stuck because the cuisine isn't stuck in Vietnam. So if you come to me and you say, well, there's only two kinds of pho, beef and chicken, I would say, that is correct until you go to Vietnam and there are pho cocktails <laughs> and there's vegetarian pho. There are, and in America, some chefs are playing with banh mi, you know, uh, um, that are like beef dip sandwiches. And then there are people, you know, who do, are doing all kinds of pho dumplings, for example. So are we to say that pho is only one thing? But I think that we want to say that pho is many things and it's very Vietnamese and it's part of that creativity that's very Vietnamese. And so when I look at that, it for me is so liberating to be part of that dialogue and to stir the pot. And so long as my publisher will allow me to, I will keep stirring the pot because I think that if um, I don't, then it, then I don't get to provide the stories and the context for people to understand what the human connections to food are. And I think that without stories and without context, food just doesn't taste as good. And Vietnamese people have been here for close to 50 years. You know, my family came here in 1975, and I've spent most of my life here. Our cuisine doesn't stand still. People are going back and forth between Vietnam and the States. And the cuisine evolves, and to be able to capture that um, is really exciting. And sometimes while I'm trying to capture that, I discover something old, too. So that's why, like in the book, there's an entire chapter called Ban Mi Possibilities. It's the shortest chapter in the book, but I'm really proud of that chapter because when you read the introduction, you get the history of Ban Mi. But when you look at the entire chapter, you see Ban Mi is like not just a sandwich that we're familiar with, but you can have a Ban Mi lettuce wrap. You can have a deconstructed like Denny's Grand Slam. I love that one. Ban Mi. I know, me too. I'm like, hell yeah, you know, it's like it could be a brunch item. And then you can have like this loaded garlic bread thing with Ban Mi. And then there's like the meatball Ban Mi, but it's deconstructed. And it's just like crazy stuff. And it's very Vietnamese um, because we're scrappy. <laughs> and we're always trying to invent things that are new, that are still rooted in um, Vietnamese tradition, food ways, but also pushing it forward. Definitely. And in that spirit of invention, I have to ask you if you could have any menu item named after you anywhere. So like an ice cream shop or a bar or a sandwich shop, what would it be and what would be in it? I would want um, some kind of well, duck beat. So, so mm. be like the Andrea duck beat. The word duck beat means special or like the works. And um, I would want like, I would love to have a bun me named after me, you know. And I have like certain things that I like in bun me. Um, 
like, you know, I like the mayonnaise. I like Maggie's seasoning sauce. I like, you know, my pate. And it could be a veg, the vegan pate. You know, I've got like this mushroom and walnut pate or like a liver pate um, and different kinds of cold cuts and, you know, daikon and, rad- and carrot pickle, but make sure that there's daikon in there because sometimes I'm looking at that pickle, y'all, and it's like carrot. And that pickle really relies on the funk of daikon to like just go, yeah, you know, it's, and it's, that's part of the bunmi flavor. Then you got your cucumber, your, your um, cilantro and your chilies. And it's really like when you take it in totality, it's like a salad in bread, right? And so if I could have um, a, Andrew Nguyen duck beet sandwich, that would be really cool. It's like the works, you know, with like all various cold cuts. But I just named the duck beet sandwich. So I don't know. I just, for people to just like do food well, I would just be so happy. Yeah. I think someone out there listening, make this banh mi happen. It's overdue. The Andrea banh mi. Yeah. <laughs> just do it justice by putting all those things, elements that I put in there, including the daikon and carrot pickle, Maggie seasoning sauce. Oh, the the mayonnaise in um, Evergreen Vietnamese is like my QP dupe, and it's really good. Mm, love a QP dupe. Well, that sounds like a great sandwich, and this has been such a fun conversation. Thanks so much for coming. Oh, thanks for providing me in. Kalu Henry, welcome to the Taste Podcast. Thank you, Matt. I'm so happy to be here. I love seeing you in an IRL zone. My God, we have a lot to cover. We sure do. It's been it's been a long time. It's been a while. We've traveled together. We're longtime friends. And I just want to first hear about Nova Scotia because you moved to Hudson, New York, famously on social. You hashtag House in Hudson. We're going to get into that trajectory from Brooklyn to Hudson to now Nova Scotia. But what the hell is Nova Scotia? Yeah, Nova Scotia. So it's kind of a wild, long story. I won't. I won't. Um... I'll try to make it um, interesting and quippy. It will be. But um, my husband's Canadian, and for a long time, he was uh, bringing me to Canada, and I really wasn't falling in love with anywhere. This was before we went to Montreal, which I'm obsessed with. Um, and he took me to—he went to school in Halifax and took me to the South Shore and said, Kalu, I really think this is going to be your spot. And I was uh. like, okay, Chad, better be. <laughs> and um, I fell in love with it, completely fell in love with it. It's very Maine-like, but like yeah. on steroids because there's no Americans and you can bring <laughs> bring dogs to the beach. Yeah, and it's yeah. just like epically beautiful. We went there during the pandemic because, Chad, I was able to get in, which was amazing. Um, And during that time, people from Vancouver started buying property sight unseen on the South Shore, just like a lot of people moved to Hudson, essentially. Very similar, Mm -hmm. but the Canadian version. Um, And so that summer, we decided to go two hours further south just to see, like, what the vibe was. And about a week before we left, my stepmother texted me and she said, are you and Chad still looking to buy a house in Nova Scotia? And I said, well, yeah, why? And she said, well, my best friend, Hope, who I know, her husband is from Nova Scotia and his great uncle is looking to sell this farmhouse. Oh, wow. Under the radar. Oh, so like not listed, like one of those like dream situations. Yeah. So they sent through the photo of the house. And please keep in mind, Chad and I have been looking online for years. We were prepared to buy like a shack. Yeah. And this house comes through and it's like my dream house. It is and Anna Green Gables, it's on 14 acres. Oh, wow. A lot of has, property, a lot of mowing. Yeah. Had, yes. Chad <laughs> she keeps trying to make that my job. There's fruit <laughs> trees. Anyway, 
it is a long story. I'm not making it short. I was like, there's no way in hell that we're going to be able to swing this. But it was the exact amount of money that we had put aside for this house. Absolutely. It was very, it was kismet. Kismet is, is a word I was searching for. Um, what is the food like in Nova Scotia? I think, I, I know the band Sloan is from Nova Scotia. Mm-hmm. I, I, I know that they probably put their milk in bags in Nova they Scotia. They sure do. Still um, do. Still do. But, but like, what's, I'm sure seafood is, plays a role. Yeah. So, I mean, most Nova Scotia, I believe, exports the most lobster in the entire world. Wow. So there's a lot of lobster. Um, there's also where we are, we're really close to Prince Edward Island. So there's obviously we can get mussels and there's a there's a big seafood component. Where we are is pretty rural. It actually is very reminiscent of the Hudson Valley in mm-hmm. terms of being surrounded by farms, um, which also drew me to that area. I'd never been to the North Shore. Um, and really, we do a lot of cooking at home. Halifax is like an hour and 45 minutes oh, away. Oh, yeah. So you're out there. Oh, yeah. We're out there. It is rural. Um so the food, I really, I'm making it, so it's great. I love it. I bet it's great. And, and I can't wait to keep following you on social to see what you do at the house, and you'll be living up there this summer. Okay, let's talk about the Hudson Valley, because I, I have moved there myself. Yes. Listeners of the show know I, I'm up there from Brooklyn. I lived in Brooklyn and New York for 20 years and moved there, and I did that a couple of years ago. But you moved there in, like, 2017, and yep. you had this great hashtag, as I said, House in Hudson. What was it like moving up to Hudson, New York and being one of the, I I would say one of the first like Brooklyners to like go up there? Yeah. I mean, it's changed dramatically. Um, It's been nine years. I also lived in Brooklyn for about 20 years. And then, you know, we were going back and forth for a little bit. Um, And it's, it's been interesting. Um, The area has changed a lot just in terms of. um, (laughs) Wow. A lot of people live there now. A lot, actually. A lot. Times a lot. I I read somewhere that I believe that the Hudson zip code was the uh, had the highest number of address forwards during the pandemic. Yeah. Wow. Um. So it's um. What's it like there first? Let's just let's oh, yeah. set, let's set the scene a little bit for folks who've never been to the Hudson Valley mm-hmm. or up up there. Where is it in relationship to New York? Sure. So it is a two hour and. 10-minute straight shot on Amtrak. It is right on the Hudson River, which is so beautiful. Um, I actually grew up uh, in the lower Hudson Valley. Um, this is upper Hudson, mm-hmm. up HUD. Um, I live low HUD. You live low HUD. Yep, yep. Yep. Um, it is beautiful. We're surrounded by incredible farms. Um, there's a lot of creative people, you know, that live there. I live very close where I live in town, essentially. I don't live what on what on Warren Street, which I call the movie set because it is just mm-hmm. well, it's beautiful, but it's also like prohibitively expensive. Yeah, <laughs> like yeah. you can't shop. My dad came last weekend and he was like, Have you seen all these crazy cars really on funny. Warren Street? And I was like, you know, I don't go on Warren Street anymore now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I stay in my home, my next door neighbor. Yeah. We we do a lot of uh, dinners at homes. Yeah, yeah. Other people's homes. Yeah. Great community up there too. Amazing community. Yeah. Um, a lot of food people, ton of publishing people now. Yeah, <laughs> it was time for me to go further. Yeah, to northeast. get away from the. Yeah. the, the I'm the like, Bro- I left you people. The Brooklyn cosplay is <laughs> is, is real in Hudson. Yes, and let's talk about the food. I I love Cafe Mutton. I'm obsessed. I I've been uh, and I I just think it is. I'm glad it's one of the James Beard finalists for New York State. Same. Really proud of that. But uh, let's talk about that. I was a big fan early on. I think they are doing incredible food. It is the way that I want to eat. It is the way um, 
that I love. I love the way they write their menu. I just think all of it is just very accessible, even though you're, the dishes are so sometimes insanely in the best way over the top. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm thrilled for them. I think it's awesome. It's actually like the closest restaurant to my house oh, as wow. well. So you live um, and Little Deb's Oasis right down the street too. Literally. So yeah. I'm in like you know yeah. I always uh, I'm ahead of the curve a little bit. It's you a know good little I mean? spot. I <laughs> yeah. love that. I, I mean, it is over the top though. I think that my experiences there have been with brunch, and yep. and so I haven't been one to one of the Friday night dinners. They only do dinner one night a Correct. week, right? So I must say, just some of the pastries, but also just like it's like it's like British. It's definitely has a root of the it UK. does yeah. for sure. Um, dinner is also super fun. Um, yeah, it's rich, um, and I. It's like there's a there's a I don't give a fuck yeah, yeah. kind of you know mentality in that way in the best way like yeah. this is what we want to make and we're making it and you can say or you can go and we don't really care which <laughs> i think is really cool yeah is it tough to book on fridays now you they don't they don't book oh they don't book at all yeah so there you no, go so you just have to show up just gotta show up early show up early yeah well that's a great place cafe mutton little dubs oasis is there anything else in hudson we should know about i know it's like picking children but... no no i mean rivertown does a beautiful job they just opened um another restaurant across the river in leeds called casa mm-hmm. susana uh which i've not been to yet but i've heard already incredible things it yeah. is traditional mexican and yeah. um i'm very excited to really get over cool. there um trying to think I mean, you kind of nailed the the top. Quinny's is also lovely. It's a little bit out of town, but great, great sandwiches and some groceries and provisions. Love to hear that. So, so you're not going to be in Hudson in the summer. This is crazy. Correct. Wow. We are. Um, my husband and I decided last night to leave on Tuesday yeah. to just go open up the house. It's an 11 hour drive, <laughs> but it's not. He's done it in one shot. He did it in one shot last year. Um. It's not that bad, really. No. When you get on the road, you just go. Pack just some go. sandwiches. Get some podcasts. Listen to Taste Podcast. Listen to Taste Podcast. Yeah, do it. Okay, we were Emilia Romagna in 2018. We sure were. I love that. I want to relive them. I'm going to link to the show notes, the uh, issue that we we published here at Taste from that trip and with uh, Dre, Drew Laser, Michael Harden Turkel, you and I. It was the best trip. What a trip. It was cool. It was nice to be with friends, but man, Emilia Romagna, right? Yeah. I mean, I want to get back. Yeah. I have not been back. Me either. I don't think I've been back to Italy since. Don't quote me on that. But um, that trip was really magical, and it was such a great group of people. You're right. It was like friends that were experiencing really cool food and learning so much about vinegar. Right. Um, and, yeah, I would. I wish we could recreate that trip. I know. It was great. And, like, learning about the battery system for balsamic vinegar was my biggest takeaway. Yeah. Um, that was really cool. Mm-hmm. I was just going to say, also, there's an amazing farm store in Hudson uh, called Morningstar, which I go to to get my groceries because I can't, I hate going to the farmer's market. We can get into that or not, but I have a lot of market anxiety. Wow. Um, but they sell uh, one of the vinegar producers. Really? Yes. Oh, wow. Of course, the he's like the handsome the guy. We went and his mom made us dinner outside. Their that pop- guy? I love that guy. Clueless. Actually, go there. Um, farmer's market anxiety is interesting. Uh, what do you mean? Well, Hudson's a small town. And, you know, I have a people-pleasing quality that I try, that I'm working on. <laughs> and I go into this sort of performative mode of like, oh, hi, hey, how's, and I just like, I don't want that on a Saturday morning. I'm potentially hungover. I just want to get my local produce and my local meat and like be left alone. 
which I know sounds silly because I am a social person, but I think I'm like, I don't know. It's just, it causes me a lot of stress. And then you run into so many people and then then you have to be that person. And I just don't want to have to be that person. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah. And at the market, it's definitely like before 10, usually the coffee hasn't really quite hit, hit yes, yet. Exactly. Um, exactly. Yeah. I used to go to the Carroll Gardens uh, Farmer's Market on on Sundays and yeah, and feel like I just need to go like headphones in. That's headphones in is actually... It's a good move. Yeah. It's, it's like, are you on a call? Are you listening to a podcast? I mean, no one's going to really know, mess with you. It's true. It's I just, rude though. It's very rude. That's what I mean. I have to, then I have to feel like I have to be like, go put my head down and I'm just not, I just would rather just... Not. I love that we're tackling this um, head on because I think farmers markets have a lot of like subtext there because we we talk about pricing too. Yes. And like pricing is important to recognize that it is higher because subsidies aren't being given to these farmers. They're small. Absolutely. They've in from two, three hours away. And, and really, I think to bring it up, we just have to say like it's worth it. Pay the money at Absolutely. the farmers market. I mean, I... I, f- I love Morningstar Farm Store is about t- five, seven minute drive from my house. And they have they grow a lot of stuff themselves and they have stuff from all around the valley. So then I'm, I'm supporting them. I'm supporting their store and I'm also supporting local produce. Yeah, absolutely. And it is worth it. I mean, it just and the quality is it's, it's the proof is in the pudding. We have to definitely talk about the quality when when you're growing um, and, and it's being picked and harvested you know, 24 hours before it hits the table. Absolutely. It's gonna, there's going to be a premium there, but you should just like, you know, suck it up and pay it. Suck it up and pay it. All right. Well, let's talk about your book, uh, Clue Cooks, Easy Fancy Food. I want to ask you straight up, how can food be easy and fancy? How about unfussy and empowering? Okay. Was that the <laughs> was that the original title? And like, it didn't No, bite? the original title was Please Bring Dessert because I don't bake. And I asked my friends to write the dessert chapter. <laughs> and um, I thought it was really fun and everyone was on board. And then, you know, my publisher had a like a, a moment. They were like, well, people are going to think this is a dessert book. And I'm like, so what? I'm like, maybe they'll, they'll buy it anyway. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I got vetoed. So Easy Fancy Food for me is I think just trying to hit home that food can be sophisticated, but it is often simple. And I don't want to freak people out in the kitchen. I'm really there to empower them. And so, you know, you do, I know it's cliche, but you do eat with your eyes first. So I could, like, there's a recipe in the book that we're serving tonight at this pop-up. It's roasted mushrooms with sour cream and herbs and nice. some- uh, What kind fennel, of mushrooms? All over. Yeah. So there's an amazing, actually, Devin, my friend, has Tivoli mushrooms up in, um, mm-hmm. in Hudson. I'm obsessed. I don't know what they're using tonight, but hopefully a variety. Um, but the way that it is presented is beautiful, but it couldn't be easier to make. You literally roast mushrooms. You put them on a you know a bed of sour cream and yeah. you scatter them with herbs. It sounds like the perfect. It could be a main. It doesn't have to it be a side It could be a main. Dish. Yeah. Absolutely. I love um, that. So, yeah. Kalu, you write a lot from the New York Times. And when you're writing these recipes for cooking— what? How do you go into that recipe development process? What What is like your goal? Because you really do have a style of your recipes. So when I wrote recipes for the New York Times, um, a lot of it was driven by SEO and really catering to the weeknight cook and trying to get everything down to as few pans as possible. So that really kind of was dri- in, in a helpful way, yeah. you know, I mean – People are busy and they want to get something on the table that tastes good and is easy to assemble. And I think that that was, you know, helpful, honestly, in a lot of ways, because it made me think about the 
the cook and the user. Um, and I think that in general in recipe development, I'm always anticipating that, right? So I want to create something where people aren't questioning themselves. Mm -hmm. But there's like I think there's a balance between um, empowering and anticipating, mm -hmm. right? Um, and I, I hope that I do that well. I try to do that well because you want someone to be confident, but you also want them to um, – Follow what you're telling them to do. Yeah, but like putting the comment sections are hilarious on the New York Times. Cooking oh yeah, it, it can, I'm sure that's that's an interesting moment when you publish yeah. something and you get like all of this flood of comments. And yeah, comments are, are are for creators are quite quite a thing. They're hilarious. Yeah, they're hilarious. Um, but I think when I'm developing my own personal recipes, there is some of that too. The anticipate anticipating what people might have a question with, but empowering. Um, but it really kind of depends. Um, sometimes I work backwards. Like sometimes I'll have an idea for a dish and what I want it to look like. Mm -hmm. um, and then I'm like, okay, well, how do I sort of make that work? Like there was a uh, a recipe that I created for my newsletter. It was like brothy soba with some salmon. But I didn't – I wanted to – I don't know how to – I don't know if I'm articulating myself the best way. But essentially I knew what I wanted it to, the outcome to be. So I was like, okay, so what do I need to do in order to make that happen? Yeah. Um, and sometimes it goes the other way. You know, I think I'm really driven by my cravings and also seasonality. So I love that. So there's a lot of different um, elements that go into developing, but I think uh, empowering is what I'm hearing the most. Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> Did I say that like 17 times? No, no, it's a really, yeah, you said it about 14. No, no, yeah. you know, I, I, but I think it's so important that you're giving uh, your reader a permission yeah. to uh, maybe fuck some stuff up and, and but it's okay. And I think that's it's right. really okay. And I actually have a funny story. Um, my, the roasted tomato and white bean stew was the most popular recipe at the times, the vegetarian most popular recipe of 2020. And my editor, uh, Margo, who I love, she's amazing. Um, at the time she was like, well, do we really need to roast the tomatoes? Like, can we figure out a way to like cut that step or figure out a way to get, and if it, I like, for some reason, I was like, no, like we I love need it. to roast the tomatoes. And I'm so glad that I put my foot down because it was like a viral recipe for me, which was great. Yeah, I think that sometimes simplicity is is a real um, enemy. It can be. It yeah. can be, you know, I think it's um, – I had a really interesting talk with Natasha um, Pickowitz a couple weeks ago. We did a talk in Beacon for her new book, and we were talking about how sometimes it can be really helpful to work within certain constraints, but then – you know, obviously it can go either way. I love the shout out Beacon. I mean, this is go Beacon's there. Beacon's cool. Yeah, that's closer to me. I love that. I love that. Yeah, I haven't, you know, I haven't spent a ton of time there in a while and it was, it was really nice to go. Uh, we went and did an event together at Little King. Yeah, it's um, great. Which is such a beautiful shop. Yeah, great yeah. shop. And and also Dia Beacon is worth checking out. Absolutely. Absolutely one of the best yeah. Hudson Valley art um Absolutely. It's a, it's special. The Hudson Valley is, is magical. We, we are really doing uh, travel. Travel. We should get tourism, tourism board. Yeah, where's money. the Hudson Tours? Hudson I know. Valley Tourism I board. I love it. Um, let's talk about food writing and some food terms. I, I, I have this like be in my bonnet about the word frizzled. Oh God, sorry. Did I because I have that, I think one of I my mean, recipes. listen, I, it's no it's no cut on on you or anyone who's used that word. I just want to know what the fuck it means. Means means fried. Okay, so it means fried. It means fried. And I think going back to your recipe development question, you as the recipe creator want to come up with 
really fun titles for recipes. So there's like a bit of whimsy there. No, I love that it means fried because I was like, is it like sauteed? But you're saying, and frying and sauteing is slightly different, I think. Yes, it is. Uh, And frizzled seems like, so there's more crisp there. Exactly. Frizzled. I think I, I don't know if it's the frizzled shallots. I can't remember. No, it's definitely shallots. You can't you can't frizzle many things. <laughs> can't frizzle many but, things. But, but shallots and onions are uh, alliums in general can be frizzled. Uh, it's my favorite time of year. It's so, allium allium season. Allium season. Are there food terms that annoy you? Um, yes. I don't love the word smidge. <laughs> <laughs> it's not my or smidgen. Yeah. Um, I think it means nothing. That's why. It means nothing. Yeah. Um, I don't love using the word ish a lot. Yeah. I think it might. Um, I'm sure I'm guilty of using it, too. This is no, like, dig. It's just sometimes, no. you know. And then adding wise onto things all the time is a bit. Wise. Yeah. Like limey. It's like lime. Oh, why? The letter Y. The yeah. letter Y. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You that's, know? That can be challenging. But, I mean, I do it. So We all do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I try to be mindful of it, but it's those, a tough question. I was asking you to hate on on food terms, and it, love, I know I had food. to. I have to. I had to tell you I did some research. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, "What food terms do I hate?" Yeah, um, and I don't really hate any, but I came up with three potential. You really you came to play. I, I think unctuous is banned from taste. Ooh, I don't like that word. Either. Yeah, yeah, moist as well. Oh, see, I'm coming back around. You're coming back on moist. I am. I am. I think it's gonna be funny. Yeah, it, it means something, especially with baked goods. Yeah, how do you talk about baked go- goods without ever using the word moist? Yeah, right. What is the what is a better unctuous texture? Oh <laughs> no, you went to the band word right sorry, there. Sorry, I'm right. sorry. Un- band band words and taste. We have a few of them. Um, wow, I I have to ask you about cookbooks in general. I know you have your eye on the scene. You write about cookbooks in your newsletter. I'll link to that in show notes. Do you have any favorite cookbooks from this past spring season? Yeah, I actually just got um, The Modern Spice Rack by Esther Clark and Rachel Walker. And I'm really, I've been following her on Instagram, um, Esther, for a while. And I was really excited about this book. Um, I think, you know, the UK does such a great job with cookbooks. Um, And I got it in the mail this past week. And it was really, it's really exciting um, to see their use of spices and, you know, the history of spices and how they were used. Um, And I just put a recipe out this week uh, with toasted coriander seeds. And it was like, oh, I know why I'm doing this. It's because I'm reading, you know, so I'm not necessarily cooking from it, but it's giving me ideas, Mm -hmm. which is awesome. And I'm sure I will cook from it. Um, So that's on my list right now. Um, Nils Bernstein. Yeah. The Joy of Oysters. Such a great book. Such a great guy. Such yeah. Such a great book. Absolutely. Um, so I've been looking into that. Um, Steve Sando just republished Judith Barrett's, uh, I think her name is Judith Barrett, um, Fagioli. So it's all about Italian beans. And he did it. Like he did the update. He published it. And I'm very excited. That's amazing that he's doing publishing like in that I way. Know. That's cool. Very cool. I feel cool. like some, that's happening, I feel like, a little bit. Yeah. Well, we have Nils in the show. I'm not sure if it'll run before or after this interview. but oh, Love you, Nils. Yeah, Nils is Either way. <laughs> um, let's actually talk about Substack. I love that you have embraced the platform. What does it give you? Freedom. <laughs> love it. Um, it really it gives me a couple of things. It, it allows me to write recipes that I want to write. It allows me to connect with people that actually want to be there because it's a very active community. Um, And it gets me away from Instagram. You know, I use it as a way to get people from Instagram over to Substack. Mm. Um, 
I don't listen. Instagram is I have many thoughts on. I love using it for sponsored content. Yeah. I like, you know, sharing some less and less parts personal. of your life, but not too personal. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. That's that doesn't happen. The anymore. arms link <laughs> pieces of your life. Yeah, yeah. very, very reserved. Um yeah. but a little bit, yes, for sure. Um and I like there's a sense of ownership, I think, of my Substack mm-hmm. uh, newsletter. And it's fun. I really am enjoying yeah. it. And it's, um, yeah. And I get to do video over there. My husband and I work on videos together. So that's really fun. And now they're letting you embed videos. So it's, I think it's just going to continue to evolve. Um, and there's some great writers over there. Absolutely. It's it's And it's like your inbox is a little more personal than yeah. you know, like a social feed. I, I'm, I'm a fan of Substack. Oh, awesome. Great. great. And I also like that I can also talk about things that are just on my radar that aren't necessarily food. Like yeah. if it's a television recommendation or a thing. Yeah. You know what I mean? I'm, a, I'm more than just my recipes We'll now. definitely hit the subscribe <laughs> for Kalu's Substack. I'll link to it in the show notes. Thank you. Okay, you're back in New York. Where are you dining right now? We're going to have a lot of our listeners coming here this summer. Where should we be going? Those are two separate questions, but I take mean, them both. I am so traditional these days. All I want to do is go to Via Carota, go to Keens. Yeah. I just really love the old spots. Oh, Keens. I haven't been there in a minute. It's my favorite. Yeah. It's my favorite bar in the whole city. Um, What's the order there? Yeah. Oh, my order? Yeah. Um, a Gibson. I got a Gibson yeah. um, up. And then they do uh, a crab cocktail, which is really good. Um, my my friend Helen and I usually go and we mm-hmm. sit at the bar and we'll, you know, just sort just of drinks and, and appetizers. You're not going for the steaks. Right. Although they are delicious. They're fine. But yeah, they're I fine. love that. But I, I just lo- like the energy. Pro move to just do the bar. I love that. Thank uh, you. Uh, uh, choice. Via Corota, we've talked about it a lot. Don't I'm sure. About more? <laughs> you don't need to deep dive on that. It's yeah. great. It's perfect. No, it is. Where else are you going? Um, where else am I? You know. I always will visit Diner yeah. in Williamsburg. Classic. Tarlo. I am a classic lady. Yeah. Classy and classic. <laughs> um, uh, Dion D, the yeah. amazing, amazing Vietnamese restaurant in Greenpoint. Greenpoint. Our office is across the street. I love that place. It's so yeah. good. Um, where else? Cafe China, Birds of a Feather, anything Szechuan. I'm mm-hmm. there. Great list. Thanks. Yeah, excellent. I mean, New York is is really upstate city. We're blessed. We are so a great city here. Yes. Um, Okay. So next move, you're working on um, another cookbook. I am. What's the thought? Because like right now, there's a lot of cookbooks out there. We love them all, or many of them at least. And uh, (laughs) (laughs) it's like we love every single cookbook ever published. We are fans. No, that is not. We have a point of view here. But but really, when you're when you're in this like early stages of a next book, what are you thinking? Right now, I'm thinking I'm going to just try and write recipes that are coming from a, a, as my therapist said, write from love, not for love. Love it. Which it. actually blew my, blew my mind. It. It's in the acknowledgments. I was like, Becky, thanks. Changed my life. Um, so I'm really trying to just, you know, cook and, and write things down, honestly, and then file them away. And then at some point, I'm going to have to figure out a way to arrange them. I don't know. I'm really excited to get back to Nova Scotia. There's a sense of like f- a bit of freedom there for me just to play. Mm-hmm. We talked about playing yeah. before we went on. Yeah. But yeah, um, yeah. so that was that's really inspiring. We got a uh, wood-fired pizza oven at the right house. On, right so on. that's going to be fun to mess around with. Chad is like fixated on catching a striped bass this summer. So we'll see. Yeah, it'd be great to catch a bass, cook the bass, in and the then oven. write about it in the exactly. oven. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, a, a wood-fired bass. Do you have neighbors up there? We do, but we have a lot of privacy because the property has 14 acres and it's yeah. all in the back. So, mm-hmm. And it's 
across from the water, which is also oh, cool. magical. We're not wow. on the water, but you can see it if you go up to the second floor. <laughs> How fun. So so it's more like isolation mode. Yeah. Like, it's just it. like, yeah, I don't it's it's very peaceful. I think that's why I really want to get there this week. I'm just like, I need to Yeah. And we were on the road. We were in Europe for six weeks. Yeah. Which was awesome. Listen, I need to ask you about that. So six weeks in Europe. What's going on? Was it for work? What are you doing? I get, yeah, I went to eat because yeah. I'm looking for inspiration yeah. for this next book. And um, clearly, you know, we lived through a pandemic. Yeah. Um, our dog sadly passed away last summer. Oh, man. Um, he was almost 20. Okay. He lived a beautiful life. Great life. Um, but Chad well and I, he was the best. Uh, but Chad and I couldn't travel together for many years for numerous reasons. And my dad was turning 75 and said, I really want to go to Portugal. And I was like, okay, well, if we're going to go over there for Portugal, like, why don't, yeah. why don't we just said to Chad, not to my dad. <laughs> I was like, yeah. we just stay. Yeah, um, right on. And so we did. So we we spent time in Portugal and then we went to Spain. Oh. Um, we went to Madrid and Menorca. Menorca was totally random and magical. Yeah. They have fennel growing wild all over the island. Beautiful. Yep. Cycling, I know, is big in Menorca and Mallorca. Oh, yeah. yeah. I didn't I've been to Mallorca too. Yeah. Menorca's a lot smaller, a little more rustic. It's beautiful. That's spot, good to know. And um then we went to Marseille, which is Love that town. Amazing. Yeah, I love that town. What a food scene. Yeah. There's a lot of young talent that are moving out of Paris because it's expensive yeah. and they have more flexibility to be creative. So we had some really, really incredible meals. Yeah. I mean, bouillabaisse is what the city's known for, but man, there's so much going on. I didn't even have it, which is so crazy because I love bouillabaisse. Yeah. But um, we had some really incredible restaurant meals, which I can share with you. Yeah. If you want. That's considered Provence, right? It is. Yeah, Provence. Which is my favorite place. Yeah, no shit, man. Jeez, Uh I haven't been back there in a minute. Me neither. I haven't been anywhere. Yeah. And then we ended up in the uh, Lake District of the United Kingdom at a marmalade festival. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not kidding. It was awesome. And so we extended our trip to go. Because we had friends in the competition. Oh, what? Right. I, I We've written about marmalade and competition marmalade. Uh, Leslie Parasol wrote a great piece for taste. Oh, I should look because I'm working on one. Oh, mm-hmm. there are. You should check it. It's, yeah, it's I will. Piece. So, I will. So let me ask you, what is marmalade like in, in the UK in this in this competitive setting? So there's a lot of talk about peel. Yeah. Um, I, I, had, um, I had coffee with Blanche Vaughn, who is the um, – Food editor at House and Garden UK, and I was telling her about the marmalade competition, and she was like, "Thin, thin, thin cut, thick cut," and I was like, "What?" What? <laughs> also, Blanche Vaughn is a great name. Oh, she's I know, like, and come she's on, a, I know she's a great lady too. It's such a great name. Yeah, Blanche Vaughn. Yeah, like shout out, like, so mysterious. Showing up to a meeting and saying, "I'm, I'm Blanche Hi, Vaughn." Hi, I'm Blanche Vaughn. Yeah, oh, I can't wait to send this to her. She'll get a kick out. She'll love it. Yeah, she'll love, she'll love the, the shout out. Um, come on, the show, she has a book coming out too. Actually, hey man, if you're in New York, Blanche Vaughn. Just you got an invite. There Just you look go. me up. She's awesome. But um, so yeah, a, a guy named Timmy Nims won from Edinburgh. And uh, you know, they really they, they give you handwritten notes every people enter yeah. year after year. Um, and it's all about cooking the peel. How long you cook the peel. Yep. I recall. That's great. Well, I'll look at your piece. Thank you. I'll let you know when I love it comes it. out. Um, so wow, what a cool tour of Europe. Things are happening there. I love yeah, that. Yeah, it was really fun. And the Lake District is absolutely gorgeous. Yeah, absolutely. Clue, we asked all guests on today's podcast, if you could write a cookbook or food culture book without the burden of time, meaning you have no deadline, or the burden of budget, meaning you have all the money in the world to execute this book, what would that book be? I'm going to throw you a curveball here. Yeah, let's do it. I love curveballs. I would love to write about anything but food. 
I <laughs> yeah, it's definitely not a curveball. It's a great answer. Um, Why? I'm working on some short stories and I'm working on some essays. And I, if I had, if I could take a break and not worry about money, I would love to spend time and focus on just working on those. Ugh. So in the meantime, I'm writing them and putting them away. But um, it's really, I wrote up my first short story last summer and I didn't know I could do that, but I did. And it was so liberating mm -hmm. and fun. And um, that's what I would do. I love that answer. And it's clearly in your future. Thank you. Yeah. Clue Henry, thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. Thanks so much for having me. The Taste Podcast is hosted by Matt Rodbard and me, Eliza Abarbanel. The show is produced by Shalia Harris and Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste Online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter for updates on all cool things happening. <laughs>